KZSU, Stanford, 9.1 FM. I'm Mark Molino. This is the Henry George Program. Show all about land, policy, and politics. Today in the program, we are headed up to Chico. We're talking to Teresa O'Connor. You can find her on Twitter as Redwood Girl. She's here to talk about what's going on in the local politics in Chico in particular, what's going on with the anti-homeless backlash in Chico. So we dig into some interesting recent legal cases about homeless sweeps and talk about what they're actually doing to uh, provision the homeless housing up there. So without further ado, uh, yeah, let's just uh, get into it. So, uh, Teresa, thank you so much for being here. Thank you so much for having me. It's a pleasure. Yeah, so I, I have never been up to uh, Chico. Uh, Chico is at the very northern end of the Central Valley. Uh, and I, this is just extremely, I think, interesting to get into. I mean, Chico, in some ways, is an unusual city. If, if uh, I mean, you can get into that. But I, one thing that pops into mind is it's, you know, basically right next to Paradise of the massive wildfires four years ago. Uh, but in a lot of ways, it seems like it's a very normal average city uh, as far as the same kind of things happening. But just w- one thing offhand is just as like last week in, Pal- in Palo Alto, they're finally, you know, rubber stamping uh, voluntary church safe parking programs for the homeless. And people are complaining, saying, oh, they should just move out to Oakland. Things are under a million dollars there. And all across the <laughs> Bay Area, people say, oh, people just need to move to the Central Valley. It's like, oh, the Central Valley is this magical place where there's just infinite room. People can move there, no problems. And I, I'm just going to, my first question is, what do people say in the Central Valley? Because, I mean, you can't say move to the Central Valley if you're in, in the Central Valley. Uh, no, people in the Central Valley who don't want homeless folks here say uh, they need to move to Sacramento or they need to move to the Bay Area or they need to move to Eureka. Uh, really any place but here. Uh, sometimes it's you know, this is where folks were born and raised and had homes and jobs and the detractors still want them to move away. Yeah. So I, I think, you know, Chico, based upon it's, you know, less than a half hour from Paradise. So when Paradise, 14,000 homes were burnt up, Chico had a massive shock. And this, you know, seemed to be, you know, at least some of the you know reasons of unaffordability went up and but I, I was comparing it i was actually looking i mean it's easier to look at case shiller index for housing prices rather than rent but i i compared uh chico versus fresno and like they're almost the same i mean it seems like everywhere in the central valley like people think it's it's cheap i mean chico uh, it's half a million dollars uh for an average home sale and that's i mean <laughs> that's not cheap it's ex- it's become extraordinarily expensive in chico yeah and i think a lot of the towns in the Central Valley are having the same issues. Um, I think something that's not necessarily apparent from the Bay Area uh, is that the Central Valley, a lot of the buildable land is locked up by very large uh, landowners, uh, you know, very wealthy landowners. They keep a lid on development to prevent more development than they want so that housing mm. prices never go down. Do they have do they have their hands in both pots? I mean, I'm like like I'm thinking of like back that like the Bay Area has extinguished all of the old orchards that was all bought up, but I don't think the orchards were getting like they were investing in real estate. But if you are if you are in ag and then you also invest in real estate on affordability, it seems like boy, you know, just don't sell out. Keep that keep that lid nice and tight. Exactly, exactly. Um, you know, they will claim that's not what they're doing and then they'll describe what they're doing and that's exactly what they're doing. They're they're keeping a lid on it so that there isn't too much development. Yeah, and I mean, I don't know what the logistics are, but like, the, I mean, the ag in the Central Valley is, you know, very lucrative. So I imagine, I mean, I'm not, I don't want to say sprawling out is the answer, but kind of it is, it does have an ameliorative effect in places like Atlanta and Phoenix and Houston to a degree. Sure. Sure. Um, but it seems Chico, like things get even worse when you don't got that. Chico is unusual in that we are wedged right up against the foothills, yeah. which um, there's increasingly the idea of the, the band of ranch land between Chico and, you know, say, Paradise. That's sort of the buffer that Chico has um, against those sort of encroaching wildfires. So we, a lot of folks here are advocating against sprawl and more about density, you know, more about increasing, uh, building, building more, but building up, building more compactly. 
there are a lot of empty lots in Chico that are not super big. So traditionally developers have been saying that they don't pencil out for for smaller developments. Yeah. Uh, but we are also seeing that with some of the, the recent laws that were passed regarding, you know, splitting lots and uh, having and um, like an extra unit, uh, an ADU on each lot, uh, they may start penciling out if they were to look at them more closely. That's interesting. I mean, do, do you know, uh, is, is Chico in the middle of a housing element kind of thing about what it's Yes, planned? Chico is definitely. In the, uh, well, we just um, went through what they were calling the, the housing element process. Uh, really, it was this, the city staff uh, just doing what they've always done, which is trying to uh, persuade the state that these lots that nobody has any intention of building affordable housing on are really quite viable for affordable housing. Um, mm. And it appears, although it was not made clear, it appears that the state sent the original, um, the first draft back to the city with major notes because there were some changes made, uh, which unfortunately went in the wrong direction. They just, uh, they promised even fewer uh, spaces available for for viable affordable housing so instead of trying to find ones that worked they just took away the ones that that didn't seem to work well, so are they is do, are they meeting their quota of how much of the different not, u- units it does not seem to be and uh there were some strong analyses provided that indicated that there was no way that this housing element was going to work um House, uh, it was either House or Housing Sacramento, uh, very generously provided a very thorough analysis of Chico's housing element. And then our um, a local group, Smart Growth Advocates, uh, also provided a housing analysis, um, not quite as extensive, but both indicating the same thing, that the, there's just parts of the element where are based on just fantasy. Yeah. Um, and I think the city is used to being able to get that sort of thing passed by the state and we're really you know crossing our fingers that the state's gonna throw it back and say this isn't this is not viable yeah but uh, so i mean talking about kind of growth you know potential this is like a very slow process but there's a lot of things that are very pressing in chico like a lot of places you know most notably uh i believe the numbers are over two thousand homeless people at least different points uh is in you know i i think the other thing is when you combine that with a lot of anti-homeless antagonism which is something which is ascendant in so many places in california and i don't know if chico is ahead of the curve but i think looking at what's happening in chico probably is going to let people know what what we you know what people are up against in in other places just talk a bit more about i think the rise in homelessness and kind of you know other things that you've uh, seen in in town sure yeah we we did have a huge shock with the campfire um 14,000 residences, but I think it came out to about 20,000 population that increased in Chico almost overnight, which yeah. um, a 20% shock. You know, I don't I don't care how much housing you have or don't have. Any city or region is going to be shocked by 20%. And I think it, it might even be worse when it's smaller just because there's there's so few options. There were so few options before the campfire. And then to have 20,000 people land with you know almost nowhere for them to go uh it yeah, um, vacancy rates were one percent or lower that's i mean that's vacancy that's rates a- were extremely low i think um they were under two percent i don't i don't know if they can even calculate um yeah much lower than that um it may have been one percent it was very low i moved up here just about six months before the campfire and that was in let's see that would have been in april and just before I moved up here, we were seeing that the vacancy rates at that point were under 2%, which shocked us. I had no idea that there was such a housing crunch in, you know, in a city. I, before December of that, uh, the previous year, I'd never even visited Chico. Um, yeah. I just, I needed to find something with um, cheaper housing costs. And I had a remote contract. So I had a friend who said, hey, check out Chico. Um, I really had no idea the, uh, what the situation was like here. I was very surprised. And then I did find out later that many other cities in the Central Valley having the same issue, um, that the people are being pushed out from areas like the Bay Area or Los Angeles. 
and those Central Valley cities just never, uh, never developed the housing that was needed to handle those, you know, those out, those incoming yeah. migrants, really. No, I mean, we see it in the backyard over here in the Bay Area. A lot of people just go right over the pass to Tracy and Stockton and stuff. But, I mean, it seems like everyone, it doesn't matter. I mean, Fresno and Bakersfield, everyone's getting getting hit a bit. And at a certain level, you know, it's there's no exhaust pipe at it, you know, if, if everyone is just taking exactly, it on like that. Exactly, exactly. Chico, uh, some folks in Chico are of the opinion that Chico is kind of like the last stand for California. There, There is no place to go. For folks who were priced out of uh, who are priced out of Chico because they can't afford it, they were, you know, a lot of folks in Paradise were living in very marginal housing situations, uh, substandard, uh, possibly illegal units, but it kept the rents low. So folks who only have Social Security can afford to live in places like those. There's nowhere places, there's, you know, there's nowhere for folks like them to live in Chico. There's not enough um, affordable housing for seniors or for disabled folks. And you may know that Chico is, um, has a, a large retirement community here. A lot of folks in the Bay Area retire to Chico. It's, uh, it's a college town, so you get that college town vibe. Uh, there's Chico Performances, which is sort of similar to Cal Performances. They bring in you know, plays and orchestras. Um, and performers from around the country and around the world. So you get a bit of a big city entertainment vibe there. So it's, it's appealing for a lot of retirees. Um, but if you only have social security, there is, oh, there's just very few options. And there were so many in paradise who were in that situation. Yeah. So um, on the books, I'm kind of curious, like, Outside of the statewide protections for rent stabilization, AB 1482, which covers, you know, some but not all properties, and that was not in place at the time of the campfire, I was hearing stuff about rent gouging. Was there anything on the books to prevent, you know, I mean, it seems like if you have low vacancy rates and then this huge shock, uh, any landlord without without great ethics, which are, in my book, almost all of them, like, that's <laughs> that's a great windfall for them. And, like, did anything stop them? Um, I think the only thing that stopped them is the general sentiment in Chico um, that this is this has been a low wage town for a long time. Uh, I think partly because of the constant influx of college students, yeah, and uh, it's it's small, so it doesn't have a lot of competition with you know nearby cities. It's like if you don't like Chico, well, oh, you have to go a long ways to. Um, to, to find an alternative situation. Yeah. So, so landlords, instead of like really turning the screws as much as they could have, they were forced to slow roll their hands. Yes. That's been my impression. Um, although there's, there's just not very much data being gathered in Chico on rent. Um, I see a lot of reports on the economy and housing that are almost exclusively about for purchase housing. They hardly ever um, really analyze the rental situation. Uh, Golden Valley Bank puts out a quarterly economic snapshot report, and one section is housing and nothing about rental housing. Yeah, I mean, to, to state an obvious point, I mean, we don't have a rental registry statewide. Almost Exactly. I mean, very few cities have anything at all, and some places that have it don't enforce it, do anything. The data is awful. I mean, I think you when you see it, it's usually some of the private companies using their own secret sauce, which is, I mean, I guess it's good that there is data, but, you know, we can't use it that, that well. <laughs> yeah, and it's just not very comprehensive. Um, a lot of the, we do know a lot of the rental housing in Chico is owned by some major corporations. Uh, Hignal is a major corporation in Chico that uh, um, apparently it's one of the oldest landowners in Chico, uh, mm. and they own several of the apartment complexes here. And there's there's a handful of other uh, fairly large corporate apartment owners, um, but they do seem to have, like you said, slow rolled any gouging. Um, but yeah, again, with that, without hard data, it's, it's hard to tell how uh, if there is gouging going on, and I'm just not hearing about it. Yeah, so... The Chico City Council, it sounds like for a number of years, it has taken a conservative turn. And in this case, conservatism uh, is heavily tied to like homelessness, 
you know, eliminationism or, you know, just, you know, sweeps and everything else. Just talk, maybe talk a little bit about kind of what they've been trying to do at the city council level. Sure. So, um, well, just to give a little bit of background about how it happened in 2020, uh, when we were in the middle of the pandemic, I think the prevailing sentiment among the Democrats here in town is they did not want to do door-to-door canvassing. Uh, they didn't want to risk it. And they didn't think that people would be receptive to door-to-door canvassing. So uh, it, there's many of the candidates that just didn't happen, whereas the conservative candidates did not have any compunction against that. They were fine with going door-to-door, even without masks, and they drove a lot of votes that way. It's is the major perception, I think. So uh, local, I mean, local seats are, you know, nominally, you know, not nonpartisan, uh, but but just, I mean, I always think it's weird in the Bay Area, you people, people who are home, anti-homeless, you know, real right-wing ghouls will still be nominally Democrats. Is, is Chico, do they have a, an actual GOP that's competitive there? Or like, how does it run at the state level too? Sure. The um, Our assembly member is a Republican, James Gallagher. Uh, our state senator is a Republican, Jim Nielsen. Our uh, U.S. representative is a Republican. Uh, that's Doug Lamalfa. Hmm. Okay. Uh, yeah. Sure. Yeah. Yeah. So we're we're fighting headwinds at every every level. Um, that's interesting. And it is widely perceived that uh, it's the developers, uh, also helped by James Gallagher, who funded a PAC last time that got the conservatives elected to the city council. Hmm. Okay. Yeah. So. I mean, the overall, I mean, certainly at the national level, I mean, it was in the news a few weeks ago, uh, Donald Trump was saying, we have a solution to all of our homeless problems. We just need to move them out to the edge of cities and build up, you know, 10 cities with the capacity to house them all. And it's, I mean, I think it's interesting in places where the GOP doesn't have a a foothold, the people who are Dems who are essentially anti-homeless, that's that's what they're proposing, you know, so they're with Trump. I'm kind of wondering how they wriggle out of it, but it seems like in Chico, they have no problem saying, oh, you know, we're with the Trump plan. That- absolutely. They are absolutely, yeah. um, I, you know, I, I don't feel like they go out of their way to express allegiance to Trump, but they certainly don't go out of their way to, you know, to to distance themselves from him. And they're fine with adopting um, all of his policies, his attitudes, his general, there's just such a general lack of concern with what the majority thinks yeah. uh, because they've got their district gerrymandered. They've got um, our assembly member and Congress member and state Senator rely on the conservative vote out of Reading, which mm. is huge. It is a huge conservative uh, majority there. There's an evangelical church there that is gigantic. The Bethel church, I think. Hmm. Uh, they own uh, several businesses. They just they have, they organize a ton of support there, and that just overwhelms um, Chico and Grass Valley, which are the sort of the Democratic strongholds of those districts. So, as as far as what their ambitions were at the city council level, their ambitions were to you know make anti homeless statutes. Hard. I, I saw something about a sit and lie law that was on the books that they brought back, which is just it's it's criminalizing you know existing on sidewalks if you're not standing, right? Absolutely, they were very angry that the previous city council, which was nominally a progressive majority, had allowed homeless folks to camp in the parks because of COVID, uh, the COVID policies, which were, I believe, uh, recommended by the federal government, were that you should not try to disperse camps uh, in the middle of the COVID crisis, and that parks were probably a little safer at that point than congregate shelters. Um, Our congregate shelter in town, the tourist shelter, uh, had to cut its um, available beds in half, which uh, greatly decreased, you know, their capacity to, to handle to handle folks, and I think um, the continuing effects of the campfire and the continuing effects of the pandemic, with a lot of people getting laid off, uh, it just increased the homelessness, the visible homelessness crisis, especially. Um, I, I think it was the visible element that really bothered folks. If you know, if they had been on the edge of town, like like what Trump was suggesting, I sometimes I think that. That's really all they wanted. 
and I'm seeing that you shared an article or two about kind of what is there is a back and forth about what people can do. And it seems like, yeah, there's a super majority at city council, but it seems like their main their main uh, hurdle is the fact there is uh, a new uh, some new judicial rulings as well as stuff that's already in the books uh, that are, you know, saying you cannot do sweeps unless there is shelter capacity and without even on an individual basis uh, the eligibility to be part of a shelter. So why don't you, why don't you say more about kind of uh, any of any of, you know, kind of what what how these came about or what they entail? Sure. So the um, shortly after this um, conservative city council was elected in 2020, I believe it was in January 2021, they started enacting uh, some anti homelessness um, ordinances. Uh, declaring folks could not camp in the parks. Uh, they started evicting folks from one, from one park after another. Um, and homeless advocates and activists started getting more and more activated and working to help folks get moved, which just infuriated the, uh, the supporters of the city council. Uh, and it finally came down to just a couple of camps where folks were getting concentrated when the legal services of northern california legal group uh they had been gathering uh stories and data for a while and they filed a lawsuit against the city of chico uh, on behalf of i'm going to say six or seven homeless um homeless folks uh on the grounds of martin v boise which was a legal ruling that um at least for the ninth i believe the ninth circuit court region makes it so that cities must offer suitable shelter if they're going to have these um, anti-camping ordinances. And yeah. when the, and because it was absolutely documented that there was not even close to the amount of shelter space needed for everybody who they were evicting, that this, this, um, the sweeps needed to stop. And a federal judge agreed and the uh the settlement then dictated a, a it's a very complicated set of um procedures but basically the city would have to inform legal services of northern california what if they were going to be um evicting any folks from a a camp and they um worked with the county to open up a pallet shelter project uh with uh, i want to say but 150, 150 or 175. I think I saw 177 is, it was is, is the number they Yeah, it was originally yeah. 150, which we were frankly appalled by. It's way too large. Um, so, so I mean, was that number, it's like, these are the, like, is it targeting, these are the people active in a park we wish to sweep? Because in the homeless, exactly. the homeless number is much higher, but I guess the idea is like, well, if you're out of sight, out of mind, hiding in a car, we'll let you be for the moment or, you know, but we really need to sweep that park. So they are trying to meet their, you know, minimum quota. The idea is that they would, um, there was a lot of skepticism. Um, I'm not sure if it was, you know, if it, people really believe this or if they were just saying it. But there was a lot of voiced skepticism that any homeless person would choose to stay at the palace shelter uh, when in actuality it's turned out to be extremely popular really among the folks who have had it offered to them. Um, so I think there was kind of a, a wait and see approach from the city. Um, they didn't think that the shelter would actually get, get filled. A lot of activists thought it would get filled very quickly. Uh, it has um, been almost filled. It does appear now that the city is not offering any other spaces in the pallet shelter, uh, possibly in a bid to keep it open so that they can mm. justifiably keep evicting folks from parks. Interesting. I saw something about uh, eligibility, and they're saying that part of the ruling is if you're not eligible for the pallet shelter, you can't be swept without some other alternative or perhaps an alternative that's site. right like i guess the first question is eligibility one thing i saw is they do do a like a background check for violent felonies i don't know if there's more than that but like well it sounds like someone who is who has certain you know records would be ineligible are there well, what are the grounds for eligibility if you know um i believe you're not allowed to have more than one pet 
oh, I saw something about the dogs must be muzzled or they allowed yes, the dogs must be muzzled. And if they're if the owner doesn't agree to that, then they would be considered not eligible. So, so inside of like, because these are these are individual units, right? That's right. Uh, so, does a dog be muzzled inside of their own house? I'll... I think inside their own unit, they can be not muzzled. Okay, that's but it's just that's outside. Good yeah, answer. just outside okay. the units. I think they're just concerned because uh, we know that many homeless folks have pets. That's frequently yeah. the thing that keeps you know gives them companionship and keeps them going day to day. So. Uh, they were concerned that so many pets would be on the premises that there yeah. would be, you know, dog dog fighting issues. They just they've never done this before, and there was there's been a lot of trepidation at you know on nearly every issue. Yeah, I mean, I think just getting to a broader issue about this before getting back to this, it's I see this all over the places where you will create a nominal shelter, but the actual conditions can be left up in the air, and call it poison pill or just call it. I don't know, incompetence, no one really needed to care. Like, people can create a lot of shelters which are just not acceptable. I mean, I think at the very, I think the very, very lowest base is if you must be in at like 5.15 every day and then be out by 8 o'clock every day, I mean, this is, that's, that that's extremely onerous. I mean, I don't it, say as someone who's not a, a morning person, uh, but like also like a person like working their job and they have to be out before most people get off a, a job to get back there or else they like lose their house. You can't drink on the site or something is like one major place, like something that would be above some, you know, completely tempestuous like boarding house owner like a hundred years ago. It's like this is, and like no pets. I mean, if someone has to get rid of their pet, that's just a non-starter. I mean, and I think talking about two pets, I, that's I don't know if it, that's that that's the rule in the books, but that's that's still pretty crazy. I've I've, I've just thought for a while, at some point we're going to have to develop like a bill of rights for like what is what do people deserve when they are in shelters? Because it seems like right now people are given, I think things that are so so bad that it. In my mind, I don't know whether it's intentionally just trying to drive people out or not. I kind of assume it is. I 100% agree. And I don't know if it's meant to drive them out. I think it is meant to exert a kind of control or authority over people. Uh, I think it's meant to position homeless folks as lesser and not as deserving, uh, which I think is an underlying problem in American society for a lot of sort of our entire hierarchical structure um you know homeless folks are really at the very very bottom they've fallen through every single crack every single loose network of of safety systems and they are very frequently seen as not even people um much less you know people who who deserve dignity and basic you know their basic human needs to be met without making them feel bad about it there's you know, there's just this underlying culture of um, we need to make homeless people feel bad about what their condition is so yep. that uh, and and maybe they'll learn their lesson. Right. Like like they did something that um, that forced them to be, you know, have a disability or or have an abusive you know family relationship an abusive spouse or they lost their home in a fire. Somehow that was their fault and they need to learn their lesson. Yeah, I, I'm saying like a lot of times. Even I think it's it's I think it's good when people defend you know individual cases, make you know do, try to you know highlight their humanity. But I think there's also the danger of like it becomes a wedge issue if there's like this you know deserving homeless versus undeserving homeless, with the implication that we should you know of course find the deserving homeless, mm-hmm. which is usually like a handful. I'm, I'm thinking like all these like kind of sappy Hollywood movies where they find. Like someone is a, a musical genius or is could become a great business. It's like a lot of people just, you know, you don't have to be good or a prodigy or something like, you know, a lot of people are just mediocre human beings, but they, they still, that doesn't mean they don't deserve uh, the basics of a dignified life or something. But like, there's this idea that like, oh, you know, we can make a really strong case for a few, I'd say like make, make cases for, you know, scumbags and, you know, <laughs> annoying people and so on. I mean, they, they deserve places too. Absolutely. You know, I think that is something that uh, homelessness and having activists struggle with every day is the need to create a story 
for people to digest and understand it on a you know on an individual level so that you get to know oh this person he has a mental illness he deserves housing he didn't ask for this illness and there's no other place for him to go versus homelessness in general sucks this is stupid that we've structured our society like this yeah um so i i think it's you know it's got to be it's got to be some of both. Uh, you, ha- you have to you have to make the individual case and you have to make the general case at the same time. Uh, we're just we're fighting, you know, maybe hundreds or thousands of years of ideas of property rights yeah. and whether people deserve to have a place to live if they don't have any money. Yeah, yeah I mean, you talk about franchisement in the past. You know, you had to be a landed you know, individual to, exactly. ha- to, be, to be a person in a place. And, you know, you know, now it can be, you know, uh, any, anyone nominally, but in general, you know, it's still the idea that like, yeah, there are people, if you've, if you've invested in this land, you deserve to be here. And if, if not, maybe we'll gift you a little shelter, but this is our generosity as opposed to the idea that all human beings deserve you know, have the resource to have a place in the city. It is not a gift. It is their right. You know, it is their birthright to to go to a city and actually, you know, have a place to live uh, as opposed to clinging on the margins. And the fact that realtors, landlords, homeowners uh, have profited from the fact that there's scarcity, it's very, it's hard to unwind that system, you know, because, I mean, I, you talk about like I you see realtor ads all the time online saying it's like invest in a home. You don't want to be priced out. And, you know, it's like this idea of like the when you see how miserable it is at the edge of society, you know, yeah, buying a house is not an option. You know, this is you you need to do this or else, you know, you don't know what kind of misery is going to be ahead of you. So true. I see ads on Facebook all the time about oh flip this house you know buy this house at a low cost and then flip it for twice what you paid for it um yeah it's and you can't go in and say you guys know you're destroying affordable housing for millions of people with this process you can't go in and tell them that they don't they don't want to hear that they're not going to listen um and yeah trying to unwind that whole sense of um you know entitlement of this is this is my property. My family has been here for generations. You don't get to come into this town and tell me that we need dense housing. We don't want dense housing. That isn't what we are used to. That isn't what we like. If you want dense housing, you should move down to Sacramento. Yeah. Uh, yeah. It's, uh, it's, it's hard to tell people. People don't have the resources to move. And they have people have jobs here that they should be able to to make a living with you know they should be able to to have stable housing if they've got a full-time job especially with jobs that we all agree are necessary and useful you know like teachers nurses uh social workers what have you yeah i mean i mean i think it's a weird point i think the average person the idea of the working homeless is you know just so abhorrent that people like really are up in arms but I mean, again, I don't think a person should have to have a work requirement to, you know, gain what should be dignified shelter. But it certainly shows how how absurd it is. Yeah, and and as far as as far as the house flippers, I always like I wonder how connected that is to kind of like the slow rolling. It's like no one wants to kind of be a jerk, but I mean, realtors are in the like they're in the business of being jerks. And if someone <laughs> if someone goes in, it's like yeah, no one wants to look like the profiteering. But if someone's a middleman who somehow just buys it, resells it for much more, are they just kind of taking on the psychic guilt? Is like is there payment because they're not really adding much value add, you know? No, they're not. And I I have to say I don't think they're experiencing any psychic guilt about it. I d- I don't think they people who can handle it because they're just, you know, they don't have, (laughs) you know, that same conscious nagging at them. Exactly. And they don't think that housing is a, you know, they don't think of basic needs as human rights. Uh, There's just uh, an essential disconnect with folks. uh, And you really see it starkly in Chico that there's sort of the uh, socialist quasi communist folks who are like, 
housing is a human right no matter what income you have no matter what disability you have no matter how you know if you're a jerk or not everybody deserves a place to live and then you've got the um the hard right folks and then you know even the folks who are just the, your regular liberal homeowner have very much absorbed the idea that you you work for your housing you yeah. work and if you don't have income uh that's really that's too bad for you and I, I think if you talk about kind of you know housing as a human right how do we get from here to there because i mean it's certainly it's certainly if there isn't enough to go around it seems like we have to provision more but how do we provision it at scale and so on i mean i think you you look at like what is the legal minimum that people can do and I, this this one other article you're talking about the people who aren't eligible they are designating new campsites and it seems to me like is this like exactly the the trump proposal i suppose they have to be within the city limits but they're trying to find you know basically the worst land to stick people on because they're just out of the way right yes the city is um with the city council especially uh tends to do the, the very least that they have to do according to the settlement yeah and the settlement says we need a designated space for these folks to go to so the city it's there's kind of a petty element to the, the way the city does these things. It's yeah. uh, the worst land, the worst possible, um, you know, uh, exposure to the elements, um, the worst access to water. Um, it's just a fine. This is what we need to do. This is you get this garbage and nothing else. And I mean, and that's for the campsite. But as far as the pallet shelters they built, I guess like one question is like, how like how livable do you think it is in there i mean it's like i've lived in really really tiny places so i mean but i'm kind of curious just like you know how it compares and you know how real dignified it really is for a substantial amount of time and also like where where is it cited and i guess the other question is if they need to build more where would more of it be going that's all excellent questions so the livability uh it's my impression that you know compared to living on the street it's it's dignified compared to having your own apartment you know it's tiny it's tiny as frick um the other concern about the pallet shelter that a, a lot of activists are hearing about is that it's um it's all gravel which is really rough on folks who have wheelchairs it's uh it's tearing up their wheelchair wheels um and you're saying it's in between the units like there's a, there's yeah. a slab for the unit right Yes, there's there's slabs for the units, but um, yeah, as soon as you come out of the unit, it's all gravel. That's um, interesting. Yeah, so it's we're hoping to see if we can get some wood slats put down, but again, the city's just doing this really just as minimally as possible, as minimal services as possible. Um, I think there's yeah, a sense court, from court some court mandated anything. Yeah, people are going to drag their. I mean. I'll just say offhand another another plug for AB 2053, which went down this year, having a state level agency that could have come in saying, okay, Chico, you're not doing your job. You've lost your right. Now the state builder will build and administer. I trust that a lot more than saying, hey, you hate your homeless. We're forcing you to become developers and landlords. That just seems like a recipe for disaster. I agree. When you've got a city that is uh, opposed to to the entire process start to finish uh trying to get them to become developers at this point is is a recipe for disaster and i think some folks here would would certainly prefer you know some state oversight over yeah over over what chico's doing uh well and, and where where is it cited the pallet shelters it is, it's um it's on the south side of town it's um uh it's at the old bmx lot so is, is it, is it well connected to you know bus you know is is does it, is it a decent site as far as things go it's a decent site it's not super close to services uh there is a bus route nearby um i don't know how often it runs the the bus service here is it's not great it's run by the county uh so all all service in the city is from the county it's called the b line hmm. uh not great service on on almost any line so I, I guess in my, if, if I was like looking at their strategy, their strategy is, okay, we did, we did the sweeps once, you know, and that, and essentially that's the sunk cost uh, and we had to build 200. I guess they're hoping that they never have to 
do an ongoing sweep again that they have to be court imposed or i guess but it, it, the question is if they do things like impose an rv ban i don't know if rv bans are already widespread uh but would they have to build more shelters you know would they ha- like what are the likelihood they'll be forced to build more and more shelters i guess that's a, that's a good question it depends on if um the folks who are being evicted or moved out of the parks are willing to move into the tourist shelter the Torah mm-hmm. shelter at this point um, has, let's see, last time I looked, they had about 40 spaces available. Uh, the city of Chico is now putting online the um, all the open spots at the local shelters. Okay. Last time I looked, they, there was about 40 spaces at Torres. So if folks were willing to move into the Torres shelter, and it was full up, then they would have to build another pallet shelter. Um, Interesting. If, yeah. Well, if they were then able to, you know, if they were then allowing more folks into the the pallet shelter. Uh, at the moment, are are the are the parks that they were hoping to sweep are they swept, or is any people still like uh, um, are they still managing it? The, uh, the the big one that they swept recently was Comanche Creek. That yeah. was the that was the one that was left at the end of the original round of sweeps that led to the lawsuit. So Comanche Creek was, was the one where everybody got concentrated. They just, um, they assess everybody. They moved some folks into Torres. And I don't know if anybody from Comanche Creek was even offered a spot at the pallet shelter, uh, but there are apparently now no more folks living there. A lot of folks did move to another park called Windshine Park. Uh, which is on Humboldt Road, not far from, uh, not far from the freeway, ninety nine. Yeah. So my question, I mean, my question is the other. You talk about two thousand plus homeless, you know, people. I guess that's a mixture of that can be everyone living on, you know, a friend's couch, you know, for a, for a bit and finding a new place and hopping from place to place. Uh, could be people living in cars. I mean, did you have any? Is there is an idea? Is there a homeless survey of kind of what 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 people are actually what kind of accommodations people are up? That's right. There is. There was a um, a survey recently conducted. I don't have the uh, exact numbers in front of me, but there um, there is a significant number. the uh, The estimated total for two thousand is, I believe, in the county. And the uh, the estimate for Chico is about 800 folks, um, and there there definitely are a significant number living in cars, living in folks you know back porches, uh, in folks backyards, even uh, couch surfing, all of that. My, I mean, my 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 rule of thumb with with NIMBYs uh, is they are never satisfied. So they've been if they'll whine for years and years, we just need to sweep when you sweep. I am. I would, you know, bet everything that they are going to go after, you know, car, you know, people dwelling, living in cars next. Uh, I mean, do do is there is there signs this is already underway, or what what does it look like as far as the future of you know people you know freaking out goes? Yeah, there is. Um, there, uh, there's either laws or there's um, a general culture of not wanting folks living in their cars here. It is. Uh, it is somewhat well tolerated in many neighborhoods. Uh, who understand what the overall situation is, and uh, they don't necessarily want to harass folks who are just trying to get by, and not you know not causing any other problems or disturbances in their neighborhood. Yeah, I've definitely seen that. Which is like, okay, well, we will tolerate car living as long as you stay out of you know these neighborhoods, you know, exactly which tend to be posher, more affluent, and so on. Exactly the uh, the neighborhoods known as uh, Barber. And Chapman Town, which are um, on the south side, uh, southwest side of town, those are the sort of traditionally uh, older, lower income neighborhoods, and, they, and the, I think there is a sense that they tolerate that more. Yeah, I remember back that was a whole thing with the Mountain View RV ban uh, in in the you know the Silicon Valley area is like they tried to justify it over like narrow streets versus like larger streets and it just happened you know they they found good metrics to make it exactly kind of match the more affluent uh, areas that's been wrapped up in court I'm curious like when that lawsuit is eventually settled what kind of you know if there be a, a positive finding or or not but I think there's a lot of I mean I think there's a lot of fights underway and i and i just think that nimbys will never be 
satisfied. I think even if you clear these neighborhoods, they're eventually going to get upset if they ever go down to commercial area and see a person in the car. I don't know. Like, the eliminationism, you know, will not end. You cannot compromise or satisfy these people. I I suspect that is correct. Um, I also suspect, um, you know, we're hopeful that slowly but surely we are changing some hearts and minds that you can't keep doing this whack-a-mole of forcing homeless people to leave when there's nowhere for them to go, uh, that it's inhumane and it's not going to solve the issue, and that it's ultimately more expensive to keep doing this whack-a-mole and responding to emergency problems for folks in camps when they would be so much safer and better off in you know, some even emergency housing, uh, some sort of emergency shelter housing would be cheaper for everybody in the long run. Um, so we're hopeful that the the virulent um, anti-homelessness feeling is starting to be tempered a bit. Um, you know, without, I don't know, without a survey, it would be, it's hard to say. Yeah. Uh, th- this, this year's election will really, uh, it'll be a really good test to see if, the virulent anti-homelessness feeling is still, you know, ascendant uh, because we've got four really great um, pro-housing, uh, pro-human rights candidates this year. Yeah, and I, th- I think that's really the, the the thing there is the negative energy knows no bound and you really, you can't compromise. You need to replace it with a positive vision. And and I definitely think that, you know, if, if the only thing you're saying is, oh, please don't sweep the park and we don't have any you know, answers here, people are going to get sick of that at a, at a certain point. And, uh, and it's, it's difficult, but I guess the question is like, how, what, what, how do you po- like make a positive vision that will be effective at a time scale that people will be, be satisfied with? I guess as far as these candidates go, you know, what are they running on? And, and do you, do you think it's, it's going to be enough to really, you know, I guess, you know, reach out to people and then also really, get the resources to really make it make an impact so the one of the proposals that um several homeless folks are uh homeless activists are talking about is a safe sanctioned campground which would be privately run even on private property it would cost i don't know something very minimal like 30 dollars a month um that most of the homeless folks we know have some income even if it's you know, very minimal disability, social security, some settlement payment they're getting. Um, and uh, that's such a minimal amount that that's the kind of thing that fundraising or crowdfunding could cover if um, if it came to it. Uh, the city just refuses to even consider it. Uh, they are not interested in even looking at that. Um, and it's certainly... So they'd, they'd have to rezone a private parcel to allow them to I'm not this? even sure if they would have to rezone it. It might just be a um, like a, a conditional a, a use, use permit. permit. Yeah. 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 Inter- yeah. Um, but there was also the question of a um, uh, an easement that the city would have to grant because the I believe the road access is being blocked by some sort of uh, city utility pole. I haven't been out to the property itself. Um, but there's some easement issue that the city just refuses to even look at, refuses to even grant. Um, there's certainly the perception that they would prefer the homelessness crisis to continue yeah. to use it for their for political means. That's interesting. So, I mean, that seems like a that seems like a short term intervention. I mean, do you know what the capacity that would bring online if they're able to it, run this? It, you know, it's hard to say. Um, it would be, I would, I think it would be over a hundred people. Um, and then the, I think the, the thinking is that if it were successful, that we would be able to, you know, folks would be able to spin that off into other properties to do something similar. That's interesting. I mean, that's a big question too, of just how things scale. I, I mean, do you know offhand what the pallet shelters cost to build? I do not know offhand. Um, I know a lot of the funding is, uh, being provided by the county. Yeah. Um, and so they have a vested interest in, in making sure it's it's being run well. Uh, but yeah, I, I don't have those numbers offhand. I mean, that's I mean, it's just interesting because where I mean, in so many places, what where does affordable housing come from? How do we use it? And yeah, you know, I mean, in the end, the pool of money is going to be finite in some end. You can argue it should be much much bigger. 
but it's something like you should be using it well and a lot of times i mean it it, it is disappointing when it costs over half a million dollars per unit to build these things and absolutely it really is i see those the prices of those affordable housing units in, in los angeles and uh, just it kills me because people aren't people aren't going to support that um yeah. it, it feels like a money pit even if even when if you can point to these houses got built because of you know the, the affordable housing funding uh, when they hear those numbers, it just it makes people sick. Yeah, I, I mean, I, I just it it kind of baffles common sense of oh, you can build middle class exurban houses at the edge of you know Phoenix or Houston, and it'll be like a hundred thousand. But if you build a, a tiny tiny shelter or something, we can't get those costs down. I mean, I think the goal should be that you know people can't that housing will be actually affordable if you if you do it. Uh, but yeah, half a million isn't affordable to you know a, a lot of people. And yeah, exactly. I mean, of course you can throw in subsidy, but the thing is, then you're eating up your subsidy. And if you make it sustainable, ideally you just flood. You know, I guess you know that's that's what a a, a high competence public housing authority could be doing is make things which are scaled and affordable. But. Uh, I don't. I mean, you were talking earlier about kind of like hostility to socialism and all that. I guess, can you convince people that things just work? I've I've seen stories of like sometimes that you know you you would have a government-run supermarket when nothing runs because people say, "Oh, we need food," and you know this just this just works. We're not socialists or whatever. I mean, whatever. But I I don't know. I mean, I think at a certain point, I think people may say there is no option outside of public building if you really are trying to make this happen at any sort of scale yes i think so i think a project that works is extremely persuasive yeah. and the pallet shelter is working uh d- despite <laughs> despite being run by hostile parties despite being run by hostile parties well the the um the organization that was contracted to run it is called the jesus center they are a um a higher barrier shelter. They run a higher barrier shelter in town. Um, and they are were in the very interesting position of being sort of the bridge with uh, their board is fairly conservative and they have a lot of conservative allies who didn't think this pallet shelter would work at all and didn't think the Jesus Center should be associated with it. Uh, and then you had the sort of more liberal and progressive housing activists who didn't really trust the Jesus Center because it's a conservative org, and they mm. thought that they were going to go into it with, you know, in bad faith. Yeah. Uh, and I think the Jesus Center has luckily surprised both groups by handling it well uh, under the circumstances. Uh, they are clearly not being given enough money to provide uh, maybe as high quality food as the folks there would like. People are getting stabilized there and people have a roof over their heads, which is so much better than what they would have had without it. Yeah. So let's get let's get back to the the city council and kind of, you know, kind of what 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 else are people, I guess, as far as this positive visioning going? You're talking about kind of, you know, you know, pro housing, both. I think you're talking about kind of density and actually, you know, middle class stuff as well as the shelters. And then also you're talking about, you know, a better rental renter. Yeah, you know, protection policies. You know the the I think a lot of folks are, are not um, they're not really talking about that that much yet. I'm hopeful that some of them will be. Um, right now, the the main one of the main issues there's a huge development that's being planned on the southeast side of town in that sort of uh, buffer area between mm. Chico and the Phils. Uh, it's called Valley's Edge. And it's it's ginormous. It's um, it's going to be big. It's going to be far away from the downtown core, and the houses are going to be very expensive. Most of them. Uh, so there's um, a a lot of organizing going on against that, and I'm hopeful that that gets countered with much more of a positive of we should be building here, here, and here in these ways. Um, one of the candidates, Addison Winslow, has definitely been talking about that missing middle housing that is illegal 
in um, most of Chico due to it being almost predominantly single family home um, only zoning. Um, and folks are su surprised. He points it out and says, this housing is really cute. Too bad it's illegal to build in most of Chico. And everybody's like, what? R really? Yeah. Like, so he's educating folks. So that's great. Uh, you mentioned offhand a lot of parcels are too small to build on. I know a lot of people, I, I think you'll see some, I think, more and more interesting news about people finding innovative ways to build on small sites. So that's, I think, really going to change a lot of the calculus of the missing middle. But I think certainly, I think a lot of people are going to say, we can make our cities more welcoming. You're going to see some change to the area. If you're a hardliner who says, like, no, I will, I refuse to see a quadplex in my, on my street, I think, sorry, like... Uh, that attitude like, is not going to be sustainable for too long, but I don't know. That's right, and that but that attitude is uh, absolutely there. We're we're, we're certainly seeing that um, almost any time folks mention anything even close to the density or walkability, it, you know, somebody pipes in with, "That's not the neighborhood that I wanted. That's not the neighborhood that I bought into. That's not the Chico that I grew up in." And yeah. I want everything to be stuck in amber you know, for the next 100 years and not change. And if folks are not having problems finding housing, that's their problem. Uh, yeah. It's it's hard to get that. We're all in this together. We really yeah. are. I mean, you can you can act like you're not, but we really are. And the, the, the faster that everybody sort of gets on board with that, the more successful this town's going to be. You know, we, this, God, this town is, is so much going for it in terms of community and the arts who are here um it's, it's, but, a, it's a nice combination of having that central valley kind of thing but right at the edge i mean i i, I mean no offense to fresno and all the places but that is a lot of flat sameness but being right against you know the nice mountains and then also you know kind of having this this flat area that's that's a good combo it is as neat you know it's um you come into chico and half of it is flat and then you start going on the eastern side of town and you start feeling like, oh, there's like this Bidwell Park, which is um, fourth, seventh largest urban park in the United States. Mm. Uh, it's it's very large. And you really start feeling like, oh, there's the foothills are starting right here in town. Um, so that's a, that's a neat feeling. And I, I feel in general, like, yeah, you talk about kind of people wanting this kind of nostalgic or unchanging view. And I, I think a lot of narratives, I think it's very easy to say, uh, you know, it's like, Chico was normal and then the campfire happened and there was a shock in general I think we should always say there life is about continuous changing dynamics there's going to be shocks I mean I will I mean this is something that's probably not popular to say I don't think it's great that people were like were burnt out of paradise and then moved back I think you know to be honest based upon different risks and everything we probably should have less people live in unsustainable forest fire zones. I think that depopulating this area would probably be a good thing in the long term, which means we need other better places for them to go. And you know, to talk larger, we are probably going to see more and more climate refugees and a lot of changing dynamics to cities and so on. So the idea that like, oh, what is the least we can do to accommodate this small shock it really needs to be like, what are changing dynamics going to be? So we're in like a constant flux to take on large magnitudes of people. Sure. Yeah. I, I'm, I'm very sure that there's going to continue to be forest fires. There's going to continue to be major evacuations and migrations needed. Yeah. Uh, you know, we've seen entire towns getting, getting wiped out, which, you know, a couple, four or five years ago just seemed inconceivable. Um, but something like 80 to 90% of paradise was wiped out. Yeah. Um, you've got folks moving back there who are like, there's no businesses here. And the businesses are saying, we can't open up if more people aren't coming up. Um, so, you know, I'm, I'm not entirely sure what the answer is for those towns when you have towns like Chico that could be building a lot more and then the, the prevailing sentiment is just not to. Um, yeah. So that, that just makes it so tough. Um, that's where I would like to see the state coming in, frankly, and saying everybody needs a place to live and let's not build it in these fire zones if we don't have to. Yeah. And I mean, I think, I mean, I don't want to 
be too harsh on people if they come from a good place. But when you're talking about these people like her putting their energies into protesting this big development, I, I kind of get like this idea. It's like, oh, things were right, then things went wrong. And I mean, I just don't think that's a good use of anyone's energy. And hopefully, let's get them in better places. If it's a state builder doing a lot of stuff, you know, hopefully they'll, they'll they can see that you know change isn't always bad, and maybe that will just make people less you know, knee-jerk, hostile to stuff. But I, I, if, if good energy is coming, I think we, we need to kind of, you know, kind of stop butting heads in the wrong places like this. That's, you know, that's a good point. It's, um, it's you know, it's hard to tell activists to ha- how to how to do their activism. Um, yeah. I am very much of the opinion that we need to focus on where we can build and what we should build and how we can do it affordably for everybody who needs it. Yeah, I mean, I think that's that's a, uh, hopefully a positive message that that can get more and more traction off of you know the center left and the hard left, and I, hopefully, I mean, everyone in the center because you're going to need a lot of people who you're going to disagree with if you're actually going to change our cities in a way. But well, that something will work. But absolutely, um, but you've got some organizations in town that are building some really good affordable housing projects. Um, uh, the Community Housing Improve, uh, Improvement Program, I think, is called. Uh, chip they yeah. are building some major affordable housing developments not far from, from where i live and i think uh those are widely supported uh and hopefully we can you know encourage them to do more of those we just the, we've got a real shortage of developers in chico that are willing to build affordable housing hmm. uh chip is really one of the few that is willing to do so there's i think there's a couple that are coming in from outside the area uh, there's one called, I think, Jamboree from Southern California that is building, um, going to build one on Park Street. Uh, but yeah, we, we, we need more, more developers who, who are willing to, um, build out their affordable housing portfolios. Yeah. Yeah. So, uh, I think that's basically kind of the questions I had about all these dynamics. Anything else you kind of want to, uh, say that we should be looking for because I think it's an interesting micro microcosm to keep track of up in, in Chico. But uh, what what do you, what do you think the more immediate future looks like outside of the city council races and so on? It, it is a really interesting dynamic here. It's really fluid. Um, I think a lot of progressives here got uh, taken by surprise when the city council went uh, so um, conservative in 2020. Uh, I think they uh, they a lot of folks didn't see it coming. Uh, and at least one of the races, uh, there were uh, two progressives who ran, who split the vote. And mm. uh, so there was uh, just some, some you know, a lot of Monday morning quarterbacking of, well, this person should have dropped out or... Um, or we should have ranked choice voting on the, on the books yes, for a century now. Yeah, ranked choice voting is, um, that does not have a lot of visibility here, but it's certainly something that... I think folks who are connected to the Bay Area or who are on Twitter know about. And um, yeah, I, I'll keep trying to I press mean, on that for sure. Yeah, when we're nagging people, like you shouldn't have ran. I mean, I think that's like, yeah, so it's, it's kind of a yeah, bug in your democracy. <laughs> if like you, if it's all about hectoring people to drop out of a race instead of just saying, hey, why don't we have a system where you don't have to have vote splitting? <laughs> you know, I don't know. Right, right. I think the, um, yeah, that would that would be a better system, and I think that probably would have prevented at least that one race from going to the conservative candidate in that case. It's it is fluid, and I think that there's some uh, unification of the progressives now in in realizing that housing is an incredibly important issue, especially if, um, for the uh, the younger folks and the families who can't afford to move into you know maybe a two bedroom apartment even on Chico wages uh, with the price of rentals, even the way they are now. So I think there is some good hope for all of these candidates to get elected this year, the progressives. I don't think there's going to be any um, any fear of going door to door this year. I think a lot of folks are ready to to engage in that in that canvassing and that, you know, those one on one conversations that can make a difference. Well, it's a stupid question. They have a conservative supermajority now. We're still, I saw six one. Is, is six is, one? Is, yep. Is is even a good election enough to change it, or is it going to be a, a better minority vote? 
uh, if we well, there are four seats up this year. Oh, election. it's all up. Oh, I guess I, I, I saw yeah. my candidates. I guess I didn't see how many total seats were up. Okay, well, yeah. there you go. So, yeah, so four are up this year, and it's it's so strange the way it became six one. It was um, it was four three, I think, at the end of the last election. But then, um, one candidate got hounded out of office, uh, Scott Scott Huber, and got. Uh, replaced with a conservative hmm. yeah so it must have been it must have been five two yeah it was five two so he got um he got hounded out and they replaced him with conservative uh by appointment under you know massive protests because they were like you sh- you really have the obligation to replace you know a progressive with progressive and they're like no we don't um. <laughs> that's, that's politics. I mean, <laughs> that's, yeah. if, you, if you want, if you want to, you know, people are going to play hardball when they can. Absolutely. So, yeah. Absolutely. Don't be surprised. Yeah. I, I wasn't surprised. I think some folks here were, I think some folks yeah. here were still playing by, you know, how dare very, you, sir? How dare you? How dare you? Yeah. <laughs> this is, this is a parlor game. Um, it is, uh, it is a six, one majority. So there are four seats open. Um, one of them is currently being held by Alex Brown. Who is the only progressive on the council she uh, while she was a council member she moved out of the district that she mm. um that she got drawn into uh, when the districts were redrawn so she is not eligible to run for that same seat uh so there will be four new new candidates up for those seats um which you know if we won all of them it'd be what two to five well, there you go. Uh, yeah, I guess, I guess you can follow your your Twitter for for Chico updates. Uh, any other any kind of other places to kind of plug if you want to kind of you know keep track of things or or kind of see, uh, you know, sure. Any there's good resources? Um, there's uh, an organization called North State Shelter Team that's on Facebook. They are running a shower trailer that they built themselves, built and designed themselves uh, with grassroots funding. They're going out to Windchime every Friday, and they keep a um, they keep pretty close contact with the folks who are living there. So they uh, they sometimes will post updates on their Facebook. Uh, there's also the Greater Chico Homeless Task Force, which is a um, I, don't, I don't believe it's a formal nonprofit, but it's an organization uh, that holds monthly meetings for all of the housing and homelessness providers in Chico. Cool. Well, th- thanks. Uh, yeah, th- thanks again for making the time to to be here. And I guess we'll uh, hopefully keep, keep track of all this. And good, you good bet. luck. You bet. Cool. Thank you so much for letting let me uh, share our story here. We have been talking to Teresa O'Connor all about Chico, all about facing off against anti-homeless politics, and more. You can find this episode of the radio program and all previous episodes at the website seethecat.org. This is a presentation of. Casey Ashiro, Stanford 97.5.